This is Helping of Happiness, episode number 122. Today we are re-airing one of our very first podcasts that we had with Linnea Anderson. Linnea has overcome so much. She started out with this eating disorder that led into a drug and alcohol addiction, and she wrote this amazing book, about her life story with her sister. The book is called The Pathways Home, and she's going to talk to us today about how to have hope for those in your life that may also be suffering in addictions and what helped her to overcome and what helped her family to get through it. Hi, you're listening to Helping of Happiness. I'm your host, Hilary Hess, a crazy mom of seven kids who loves to eat and loves to travel. Mom life can be exhausting, hectic, and scary at times, so let's take this journey together. We can love, we can learn, we can laugh, we can cry, and we can become better friends while we're at it. Linnea and I, she is one of my oldest friends. Uh, we've known each other since what? Second second grade, Linnea? Is that right? At least. Maybe even first. Maybe, maybe even earlier. It's been a long... I feel like that's maybe when we became really close friends. I probably knew you before that, but tell me... Okay, so Linnea lives in Nevada. <laughs> yes, I'm in Sparks. I'm in Sparks still, which is where we grew up together. And tell, tell me about your family. How many kids and everybody else that you've got going on there? So I have a 17-year-old stepdaughter, and then I have an almost 11-year-old daughter, an almost 7-year-old son, and an almost 4-year-old daughter. Sounds like it's about to be birthday season at your house. It, it is about to be birthday season <laughs> next month. <laughs> Isn't that funny how they seem to all come at the same time? <laughs> they do. Well, I kind of strategically planned it that way so I could have summers off with my baby. Oh, <laughs> that's a great idea because you're a teacher. I teach at a community college, yeah, community at Truckee Meadows Community College, so TMCC. So, and what kind of classes do you teach over there? I teach writing, so I teach English 101, 102, sometimes 098, and the occasional lit, but mostly composition. So this all just goes perfectly with the kinds of things that you've been doing, writing books, and Linnea is also a guest blogger for... So it's called Reno Moms Blog, and it's, a, it's actually a really popular blog here in this local area. Um, it's, it's kind of like a scary mommy minus the anger. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is the scary part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, about parenting and life. And um, sometimes there's just local attractions about different goings on in the area for families. And other times it's more deep and philosophical about kind of just the life of parenting. So it's, it's been really good. It's kind of forced me to write more, which has been very motivating because sometimes it's hard. I really love to write, but sometimes it's hard to carve out time to do so. And so it's yes. been a good thing to have a deadline every single month, no matter what, I have to write something. And so it's been really good. So let's go into your book a little bit here. Linnea has written this book about her crazy life experiences. Linnea has come so far. Why don't you give us just a little snippet of your story so that people can kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about when they hear it's been a wild ride. (laughs) Okay. I'll try to do a Reader's Digest version. Um, So the, our, the book is called The Pathways Home, and my older sister and I co-wrote it. We went back and forth alternating um, voices and experience. 
And really, it starts when I'm young, very young. Um, and it kind of all started with an eating disorder. I just felt so insecure and had such body image issues that I developed an eating disorder when I was about 11, really 10, 10 and 11. And from there, that lifestyle and insecurity kind of led me into a life of drug addiction, which eventually escalated to the point where I was shooting methamphetamines and was horribly addicted to drugs. Um, and that ended up spanning about 16 years of my life. And so it really is a book about my life and about the, the trials and addiction and eating disorders and recovery. But mostly I feel like it is a book about hope because I can't tell you along the way how many times I felt hopeless and certainly the people who loved me, my parents, especially, I'm sure at times thought, well, well, that's it then, you know, this, this might just be the end. And, and it wasn't. And so I really, that was the most uh, motivating factor for me about writing the book was that I really wanted to offer hope to people who were in similar experiences and mainly to people who loved those who were struggling with drug right. addiction and body image issues and insecurities that were really debilitating and kind of taking over their lives. And so giving hope not only to the people in the addictions, but maybe even more so to their families and loved ones is what you're saying. That this Right. Like, don't ever give up on anybody because even though they may seem like they're really completely coming, I'm sure there were times when your parents were just thinking, okay, we just need to say that she's gone because you just were so, you would disappear for years at a time and they just wouldn't oh, yeah. even know where you were and then you'd come back like a cat drug in from the drowned river and then you'd leave again and oh yeah, oh, it for was, decades. So it was really emotional for me when I bet went back and read that book because I felt like I was having my own window into the story of what I was going through when you were going through all this. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. So because I remember you telling me things, it was like whenever you were clean and you were, you know, behaving yourself or at least at home, I was one of the only friends your parents would let you ever see. So <laughs> I got kind of like the download of what had been happening and then you would disappear again, you know? And so it was just so sad for me when you would go and and leave again you know it just yeah. would break my little young girl heart and just because I loved you so much it was just heart-wrenching to see and to hear the things that you were going through you know I, I remember yeah. even you know I was never in the main the big mischief but little mischief with you like we'd sneak out of the house in the middle of the night when we were supposed to be you know not sneaking out and things like that. <laughs> oh yeah well and I think I think didn't I put in there in the book I can't remember didn't I put in there about the time that we skipped young women and went over to oh Aaron's house and then your dad we were walking up the street by the ditch and your dad pulled up next I know. to us anytime like, I swear anytime I did anything that I was like not supposed to be doing I got caught Every single time, <laughs> which turns out it was a total blessing. Which to was a out. really good thing for me, but yeah, I remember. Yeah, there was this one time we were supposed to be at that church activity. You're right, and it was the one time that you know we're like, oh, let's just you know we're here right outside the door. No one will notice. We'll just leave, and they won't even have known we've been here. And so we start walking away, and we're halfway. I, I think we actually went and visited the boy's house. I think we were on our way back, and my dad yeah, drives so up, too. and it was like. 
Oh no. <laughs> it was terrifying. Your dad was very scary. My dad's scary. Terrifying. My dad is so scary. <laughs> He's really scary. He still kind of scares me. I still try to skirt around and make sure he knows that I'm behaving myself. So <laughs> but it turned out to be just the parent that I needed was that kind yeah. of parent, which I think is so interesting because your parents responded in such a different way, but I think yeah. oh, yes. what you needed, right? So tell a little right. bit like about your dad and maybe your mom too, and about they reacted to when things would happen with you. Well, it's kind of interesting because they reacted differently than each other too, right. certainly different right. than other parents would have, but different than each other too. And so that was really hard for them. Um, it was a it was, it was really challenging on their marriage and challenging for my family. And in fact, in the process of writing this book, um, it took us a long time. It took us about five years to write it. And we weren't writing for that whole five years. We maybe wrote for six months out of the five years. Right. But for each section that we would write, it, it took us some time, me especially, but I think my sister too, but it took us some time to kind of process and heal before we yeah. could move on to the next part. And there's well, one part of just, the book. Let me just interject really quick here, okay. just for those that don't know. So the book mirrors like her sister would write what was going on with her in the family at the same time that Linnea would write what was going on with her in the addiction. So you could see them in two separate lives, but how it was affecting the different people in the family in similar time periods. So, okay, keep going. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So there was, there's one section of the book, which we actually eliminated. Well, we left a couple of pages of it, but initially when Larissa sent it to me, it was, it was about 50 pages. And what it was, was letters oh. to Larissa from my family members. And they were pretty much all about me. And after, and like I said, we eventually did end up cutting a lot of that. Most of that, I think we only left like three or four pages of it. Just the stuff that was really pertinent to the book. Right. But that portion of the book, um, it took me a long time before I could come back to the book after reading that because I just felt so wretched. And I, I felt like before I had a pretty good handle on how much I had impacted my family. But after reading all of those letters and all of those stories, I realized that I just, I didn't have a clue about how much I had destroyed their, their whole world and wreaked havoc on my siblings' lives and my parents' lives and, and just really caused this constant turmoil between my parents because of their, their differing opinions about what should be done. But it's interesting because I feel like both my mom and my dad, the, the way that they responded was really important for my eventual recovery. Right. Um, my mom was pretty good about um, making sure that, well, she wasn't really going to buy my lies. She wasn't right. going to tolerate my misbehavior. And she was more, um, she was, she was a little more accountable. Yeah, she was. And, and it's interesting. My, my husband at one point after, while reading the book, ironically said, you know, it's so interesting, the role that your mom played in your life. She, he said, I feel like your dad would have just kind of patronized you to, or not patronized, would have just um, enabled you to death. Mm -hmm. He would have just continued to make excuses for you because he just was so, he just loved you so much. And he just didn't want to believe that any of that was true, but you really needed your mom to stand up and say, no, um, yeah. this can't go on this way. So she took a much harder line with me than my dad did, which resulted in, of course, me being much angrier at her as a teenager right. and into my young adulthood. My dad was kind of ceaselessly forgiving. 
Yes. But, but that ended up being really critical too, because one of the most pivotal points of, of my recovery was um, I had been, I had been living in Utah and I hadn't, I wouldn't tell my parents what my address was because my houses kept getting raided and I kept getting arrested and the police kept being notified where I was living. And so I just didn't want them to know. I didn't want to take the risk. And so my dad flew into Utah and it took quite a bit. I mean, that was the day of pagers, right? So I got a page and right. so there's no find cell it. phones, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to go find, find my friends. It's not like he can locate you, right? Yeah. No, he couldn't do location services or anything. So I got a page and I remember going and finding a pay phone and then I called back the number. I didn't even know for sure that it was my dad, but it was, and he was staying at Larissa's and he said that he wanted to um, meet up with me. Well, his intention with coming down had been that he was going to take my car. He and my mom had talked about it and they decided it was too great a risk for me to be on their insurance and to be driving around this vehicle when who knows what I was doing and, for, and and I had been gone for so long and they just hadn't even had any real visual sight of me. So they were concerned. And as he was driving to meet me to, to take my car, he said that the spirit just poured over him and told him that he shouldn't take my car. And he kind of argued with it for a minute, but then he, he felt just so strongly that he was being he was being told to leave my car. And so when he came and met with me, I'll never forget. He said, I'm not going to play Sherlock Holmes anymore. I'm not going to be a private investigator and try to see where you are or what you're doing, but I will always be your dad and I will always love you and you will always have somewhere to stay. And I remember when he left, I thought, oh my gosh, finally, here I've been waiting all these years for him to just stop trying to figure out what I'm doing, you know? I mean, it really was like a lifetime of, thank goodness, get off my back. But it wasn't very long after that before I started to kind of, even if it was subconsciously, panic about who was going to save me. If my dad wasn't going to rescue me anymore, then who would rescue me? And, and would it be that I would just die this way or, or would there be a way out? And so, so his kind of permissiveness was every bit as instrumental as my mom's um, kind of boundaries. You know, I think together they both played really important roles. But it's interesting because that my mom was pretty displeased when he came home and had not right. done with the, without the car. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that caused a little bit of problems as well. <laughs> but. But in the end, it all seemed to be just what you needed. Oh, yeah. And I mean, really miraculously, I think for my parents, the thing that saved them and their marriage was their faith. Because if they hadn't had that, my sister talks at one point in the book about how kind of my sister is a therapist. She's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And so which she, is so interesting uh, to have that not only be her be a sister, but to be someone that is a professional in the field writing about this experience is just fascinating to me. Oh yeah, it was, it was absolutely perfect to get her insights because not only did she have insights to what was going on with the family, but then she had the psychological insights as yes. well. Yes. And that actually is one of the things she talks about. She talks about how when parents have children who are struggling with drug addiction or just wayward or just making really bad choices, that there are kind of two errors that parents can make. The first is to decide, 
okay, well, I'm just going to abandon my faith and abandon my standards and I'm going to embrace the sin and the sinner so that I don't have to have that conflict or, or lose them somehow. Um, and then the second is to do the opposite, is to say, I'm going to condemn the sin and the sinner and turn your back on the child. And so she said it, it really is a hard line to straddle to figure out how to maintain your faith and keep your support network at the very moment that you need it most while still showing love and compassion for your child. And so I think, I just think they did a really good job of that kind of miraculously. So probably led by the spirit and all the prayers that they'd been offering on your behalf for so many years. I just think it's amazing how it all worked out and how now is it a spoiler for the book if you tell us how you came back? Or do you mind telling us a little bit about that? No, I don't think it's a spoiler because I kind of think it's such a process. Um, yes. One of the things that I certainly learned over the years of being in and out of rehab and relapsing and relapsing and relapsing is that relapse is a part of recovery. A hundred percent of the time, it's a part of the, a part of recovery. And so I think so often in society, we've determined that relapse means failure, which is problematic because a hundred percent of addicts will relapse. Yeah. So the addiction world is treating relapse now as one of the steps towards recovery. And, and for me, it truly was that. Um, every time I relapsed, when I would go back to rehab or recover again, it seems like each time it was like a little step further where I would completely eradicate at least one drug, you know? Yeah. And then even if I would relapse, it wouldn't be to the same degree. So it did seem like that was kind of um, step by step, but, but mostly it was, well, it was a combination of things, but a lot of it was that I had such a strong foundation of faith to fall back on because if I didn't have that, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I could ever get out. And then for me, the, the significant moment in my own life that really triggered an absolute and immediate and permanent change was getting pregnant with my daughter, Ziana. Um, but I always hesitate to want to say that because I know so many people who having a baby didn't fix. Right. Their Right. I didn't, you know, so I don't want to be, I don't want to be misleading and say like, oh, well just have a baby and then, and then everything will be solved or <laughs> because or, I mean, we know there's all those crack babies out there and everything else where the moms even continue to use through the pregnancy and everything, you know, it's not like they oh, absolutely. them up at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I, again, I think for me, it was mainly because of such a foundation of faith that I had mm -hmm. that I, I just felt so impressed upon that. It was okay for me. I knew that I could make those choices for my own life, but I absolutely could not make those choices for someone else's life. And so well, and I think that says something about you too, that that's the kind of heart that you had. Like you were okay hurting yourself. And for some reason, I don't, it sounds horrible, but you weren't okay hurting somebody else. You know, that's not, and I think that when you were in your addictions, you didn't really realize how much you were hurting your family. And maybe if you had realized that, it may not have continued as long as it did just because you oh, right. a giving heart. Like it's just such an open heart like that. Oh, well that's sweet. But, and I do think that that is a true statement, but I think 
there's nothing really that can give you that perspective, particularly when you're a teenager and particularly when you're on drugs. Because I can't tell you how many times I would think, why do you guys care what I'm doing with yes. my life? It's yes. my life. Like, leave me alone. It has nothing to do with you. So why are you worried about what my choices are? It was yeah. really hard for me to wrap my head around or my, my so, mind so around why that was important, you know? Yes, yes. So how much do your kids know about your story? Have you talked to your kids about that? Or do you kind of wait till they grow older? Or do you leave them out of it? Or what do you, how do you handle all that? Well, I mean, they certainly, I, I definitely give them a Reader's Digest version, if for no other reason, as a cautionary tale. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely haven't given them the nitty gritty, you know, details or anything. And Larissa asked, even when we were re when we were writing the book, how old I would make my kids be until they could read it. And I said, I don't know, 16. And she said, that young? <laughs> um, and, and my stepdaughter has actually read the book and she really, really enjoyed it. And I think, I think, I felt like she was emotionally mature enough to do so with my other kids I I think I just have to play it by ear and see yeah. case by see case basis, maybe yeah. yeah if if I have a child who I recognize is is experimenting with drugs or just kind of straddling that line and and trying to be a little bit more dangerous then I will probably have them read it right right away right right um but if not, then I'll probably have them wait until I feel like they're, they're at an emotionally mature enough place. But I still do. I mean, just for example, the other day we were going for a hike and my six-year-old said, um, hey, mom, were you always Mormon? Did you grow up Mormon and raised that way? And I was like, well, yeah. And he said, so why do you have tattoos? <laughs> and I, I kind of giggled and I said, well, you know, because I didn't always live that kind of faith or that kind of lifestyle. Like I said, remember how I used to be a drug addict? I was addicted to drugs. And he said, oh yeah. And that's why you're addicted to soda. Oh, oh it all comes together now. now we know. <laughs> but I thought, you know, there probably is some truth to that because I am a total diet Coke addict. And a lot of times if I, if I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, you have to give this up. I, I often will think it's probably okay. This is a much better addiction than the addictions that we had before. So. <laughs> yeah. At least it's a lot more socially acceptable for sure. So, yeah, we have exactly. a lot of that in our family as well. <laughs> Lots of Diet Coke addictions. Well, Coke Zero at my house anyway. Coke Zero. Oh, I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you feel like now? What do you do to kind of stay off any kinds of feelings where you would feel like you, I mean, maybe you're at a point where a relapse isn't really feel like it would ever be happening again, but what do you do to kind of stay away from even the chance that that could ever happen again? What are some tools that you've used to keep that at bay? Well, I feel like first of all, never ever putting myself in a position, a mental state where I feel like I'm above relapse because I think that's a dangerous place to yes. be. I will, I will constantly remind myself, you have not arrived. You know, you don't, right. you don't get to just dismiss that because I feel like so many times in my life I, I had said and felt like, oh, I will never relapse again. I, you know, I'm, this is never going to be me again. And then in less than a year, I would have relapsed and been right back where I started. And so I, I think making sure that I always mentally prepare that it could always happen to me. It could happen to anyone, but it could certainly happen to me. And so I, I have to be really cautious about that. The other thing is really, I feel like I've spent the last 12 years really figuring out 
what my triggers are and trying to figure out how to cope with those triggers in healthier ways. So like, for example, I, I am, I thrive on being a really busy, busy person and I am a very busy person, but, but there's kind of this fine line. So boredom is very dangerous for me. I can't not be busy because that's a dangerous space for me, but being too busy is also a dangerous space for me. And so I really have to manage my schedule in such a way that I I don't find myself in either of those positions because both of them can be troubling to me and they're hard for me to process and kind of push through. Those are absolute triggers for me. Um, I guess that's where relapse really comes into the equation because you can't always learn those things without having a relapse. You right. see what things it is. I mean, I feel like this with food. I, you know, I've been, you know, I love, I've had been to food addiction classes before because I love food and I've had to learn what my triggers are. If I'm going to bake a, I mean, this is silly because it's not to the same degree at all, but this is how but I it is. It in my mind, right? If I yeah. bake a huge pan of rolls, I am more likely to eat that big pan of rolls than I am to eat a big bucket of chocolate because in my mind, I'm like, oh, it's just one roll, but the chocolate's taboo. You know, it's funny how it's like my gateway drug is the rolls. It's the rolls. <laughs> it really roll after that. Because <laughs> then comes the Nutella and then comes the everything else. I don't know. No, it really is. And it's, it actually isn't so much different because food addiction, I mean, the hardest, the thing about drug addiction and alcohol addiction is that you can legitimately abstain from those for the rest of your life. Yes. But food addiction is a lot more troubling in some ways because you cannot abstain from food so for the rest of your life. I mean, that's, you won't live very long if you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be a short life. <laughs> One thing I was actually wondering about is what has been a harder addiction for you to get through? I mean, get, you know, stay off would be the eating disorder versus the drugs. I mean, which really, I mean, or can you tell a difference? Are they? Well, I think it's just been different at different stages. You know, I feel like um, the eating disorder, I feel like I have to be very socially aware and also very, very introspective. And that's interesting because to be introspective, that's, that's also another trigger of mine is introspection and not um, being in social environments. Like it's hard for me to do self-analysis. It, it can be kind of a trigger for me to, to think about who I am and what, where I'm going and, and all of those things. And so it's been kind of an interesting balance to learn how to address the eating disorder at the same time as preventing triggers from the drug addiction, you know, because they, they are so closely related. I don't know if I could give them a hierarchy though. Certainly I think again, because overeating is so much more socially acceptable, right? (laughs) It's that is a harder pattern and habit to break. And I don't definitely haven't been successful at it still, you know? Um, But I feel like learning well, okay. So when I was living in Vegas, I was the heaviest I had ever been. I had pretty much stopped throwing up, stopped taking laxatives, stopped everything because nothing was effective anymore. Nothing was working. Mm-hmm. And so I was the heaviest I'd ever been. And I was working at House of Blues and I was around all these very attractive people every day and every night. And I was feeling like, oh my gosh, I just need to hide. I just need to stay in my house. Like, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be in public. And I finally remember just deciding like, okay, well, which is worse, being home alone and just left with yourself or being fat out in public? (laughs) 
(laughs) which do you decide? And so I forced myself to just really be involved and still had made a lot of friends and went out and did stuff. And I was still partying. And so it wasn't very hard to find things to do. But I discovered that the treatment, the way that I affected the space around me was pretty much the same as the way I affected the space around me when I was 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And so that was really eye-opening to me to discover that what I didn't think people were capable of seeing in me, they could see. And so that really, it really was your personality that they were attracted to, that it wasn't the way that you looked. And that was exactly. Yes. Cause you do have a gift for people. I think you have a very magnetic personality. And I think that's one thing that was to your, your credit, but also to the downfall because you have all these people that you're either bringing up or dragging down with you. Right. (laughs) Right. But it's, oh, I think that's such a, it's a wonderful gift that you have. I mean, I, I remember I was like the Linnea groupie growing up. You know, yes, exactly. We all had a wonderful time. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know. There's just so many layers to it too, I think, you know, but, but it is interesting to be able to start to see yourself the way that other people see you. Mm-hmm. And I think too, the, the older I've gotten and the more experience I have, the more I realize like I, I often will ask my students when they're writing their memoirs or describing people, I, I'll ask them like, do you know what the people you love look like? I mean, can you remember what you thought they looked like before you knew who they were? And most people can't. It's really hard. Like I always use my kids as an example. I always say, I think my kids are really cute, but I'm not sure what they look like. <laughs> That's an interesting because way to think of things. I, yeah, because I love them and I know who they are. And so I, I don't have physical eyes to see them. I have... Yeah spiritualized to see them. And so I think seeing the world around me in those terms has helped tremendously as well to help me to see that we are just so much more than our appearance. And we're, we're also so much more than the sum of our accomplishments. I mean, we are just so much. We are, if we had eyes to see who we are and, and how we kind of impact the world around us, I think everybody's self-esteem would be increased, you know? I love that. That's beautiful. I think it's always good to to get out of your own head sometimes and just think about developing your qualities instead of how, you know, you are on the outside, which I think sometimes we forget to do. And Yes, it's so true. Thinking about the ways that our body serve us, like not very, I mean, actually really recently I was feeling super discouraged about, I had lost a bunch of weight. Well, not a bunch, but I'd lost, you know, 20 pounds and then I quickly <laughs> gained it back. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But then I went on a cruise and I just kind of fell off the wagon and I started eating crap again and I gained it all back. And so I was feeling really down about myself. And I thought, man, why do you keep doing this, this yo-yo dieting? Like, why can't you just be better? And I was, you know, I was being a little bit berating of myself. And the thought came to my mind, like, what a wonderful body you have that has served you so well. Here I was a drug addict for 16 years. I had an eating disorder for longer than that. Mm -hmm. I abused my body in ways that most people can't even comprehend. And I did it for such a long amount of time. And then still my body carried three babies and delivered three babies. My body lets me exercise every day if I want. It it, It lets me go experience the mountains and hike. And I go to Lake Tahoe multiple times a week, the whole entire summer. And I swim out to the buoys time and time again. And I just thought, you know, 
maybe instead of getting so focused and on, on being negative and disappointed in my body, I should be really grateful for all of the things that my body has done for me, despite the abuse that I've given it, not being a good steward of it, you know? Yes. Yes. That is so true. I was listening to this talk one time. Um, it was by president Russell M. Nelson, but it was years ago. I want to say like, Ooh, 20, 30 years ago. Seems like it was like in the eighties or something. Maybe it wasn't that long. I don't know. I need to find the reference. <laughs> talked about it was his ver. It was his view of the body as a heart surgeon, you know. And he's like telling, oh, yeah. you know, how how many times the heart beats and what the how the skin does. You know, the skin's breathing and the skin's doing all these things for you. And it's so great because it's it protects you when it senses something hot, so that you won't touch that thing. And it just went through all these different layers of your body and all the things that it's doing all the time. And I had such an appreciation just for sitting and it functioning properly. I mean, it's no wonder when one little thing gets off how we, it's so such a complaint, but you never think about all the millions of things that are going on inside that are going right. You know, it made me just feel really thankful for that things do go right most of the time with my body. I need to stop complaining yes. about the little, the little aches and pains and problems that I have. Yes, it's so true. Well, and I, especially in light of several friends who, I mean, along the way, obviously I buried a lot of people because that's the kind of lifestyle lifestyle. that I was living, you know, but even more recently friends who have died that had much less abuse, abused their bodies much less than I did. It makes me very grateful for, for my body and ability. So I think it's good to look at perspective about who we are, you know, Let's see what else is. Oh, I was going to ask you about your kind of turn the rails here um, okay. about your public speaking. You've been doing some motivational speaking and things like that. Are you still keeping up with that, or is that kind of? Yeah, you know, I don't have anything on. I don't have anything scheduled right now, but that has been a really cool experience to go speak about my experience and again offer the message of hope. It's really interesting because the section of our book that is really the most hopeless we titled hope. Because we really wanted to impress upon people that even when it seems like all hope is lost, there is never any such thing as hopelessness. There is always still a glimmer of hope. And so that, that was a really cool experience. Gina is talking about doing a, like a power of the portrait type of a conference, in which case I will absolutely sign up to speak there. But I don't know um, where she is with the logistics of that right now. So. Well, neat. Well, you're going to have to keep us posted. I want, we want to link up to your book and all the other ways that we can find you on the mom, the Reno mom, not scary mom. <laughs> Reno the Reno mom. not scary mom's blog. <laughs> uh, is there any last things you can think about that you want to tell people that have got addictions or, or families of, that have addicts in their families of what they can do? Just keep having that hope. I feel like really just reading the book and especially Larissa's parts, they're so important to be able to kind of keep perspective. She talks a, a lot about how where her, where her judgment shrank, her love grew, mm-hmm. and only once she recognized that she couldn't change me, that I wouldn't be controlled, did she learn how to truly love me um, regardless of what I was doing. And that, I think, was the most important thing for all of my family, for, for them to continue to love me gave me a safe space that I could return to eventually. And if I felt like I was abandoned or like their love was conditional upon my behavior, then I don't know that I could have felt like I had a soft spot to land or a safe space to be when I was ready to change. So I think those are, those are really important. Um, And really even just 
talking about my sister without her input and without her willingness to write this book with me, I could not have written the book. She um, asked me about five years before it was done. She said, when are you going to write your book? There are people that need to have that book. They need to read it. She was dealing with some clients who were kind of experiencing the same thing. Some parents who, whose daughter was really wayward and just struggling and dabbling with drugs. And so she just wanted to have it to give to them. And I said, you know, I, I really want to, and I've always felt like I should, and I've always felt like I would, but I don't know how to do it without kind of glamorizing addiction or without, right. I don't know how to be honest about it without. You kind of needed that, that balance of the family. Yeah. Yes. And, and also like, because I, I wanted to be really honest. I didn't want to act like it was all terrible because if it, if it was, then why would anybody ever be addicted to drugs? Why would they ever start in the first place? So I needed to be honest, but I didn't want it to just be like crazy glorification of drug abuse and then like horrible hellish experiences with addiction. Like I, I just needed something to temper my experience. And so yeah. she also offered, she said, well, what if I wrote it with you? And I did like a, a back and forth, like this is what was going on with all of us. And this is what was going on with you. And I said, oh my gosh, that would be perfect if you would be willing. And so we said, let's, you know, let's give ourselves time, like a five-year plan. Our goal is to be done in five years. And I think a lot of people were kind of like, yeah, right. You know, you guys aren't actually going to do it. But it was almost exactly five years later that the book was done. And it was really interesting because both of us, whenever we would write, would feel impressed upon by the spirit. We always felt like we were doing what we were supposed to be doing because yeah. we always felt good. And we wrote blind. So the way that we did it was we would write sections and then we would just email them to each other and swap. And then we would write the next section blind and then swap. So if you notice, it's not in, in specific chronological order because of that. Because right. we never gave each other like patterns of exactly what and what times they were going to be dealing with the writing about. Instead, we kind of tried to organize it more thematically. Like this is kind of surrounding this central experience or whatever, because we did it more organically than that. We really wanted to, we didn't want to influence each other's voice or experience. Yes. We really wanted it to just be what we experienced. And so it's really kind of miraculous that it came together as well as it did, given that we were really writing. Does. Yeah, it really does fit together. And I guess that's where that spirit comes into play and just teaches you, you know, this is what you need to write about because this is, I'm already telling her, so you're all set. <laughs> you're you're yeah. going to cover exactly what it is that you need to cover. So that is so amazing. I loved reading Larissa because Larissa is just such a source of knowledge and I don't, she's just a wealth of, of good advice. I feel like was yes. her parts of the story really kind of kind of is her path in the story just kind of grounded the story and then you're kind of swinging back and forth and but she was kind of does that make any sense oh absolutely and I have had lots of people tell me that the only way they could have gotten through the book was through her part right because it was like they would be just to the point of despair and they couldn't take yes. it anymore oh and then that's it would be how I felt reading it, it. I was yeah. just so sad. I'm like, oh, I had to take it in small doses at sometimes. At the parts where I kind of knew what had been happening more specifically, because it was like, you know, opening the wound again, which is funny because I, when I think back, I don't really think of it being that big of a deal, but rereading it really reminded me that it was for me at that time, which is, oh, yeah. Just, you know, 
a crazy thing to go back in time sometimes. It felt like it was one of those movies where you kind of, they think that they remembered their past and then they go back in the time and they really re see it for what it was, you know. And oh my gosh, that's so true. Gone, well, and right? it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's kind of how my family, especially my mom, after reading it was like, oh, she's like, it, it, there wasn't anything new that I learned, but it was such a, it, it evoked such strong memories yeah. that I had forgotten, yeah. you know. And so I think that was, but, but as a result, I think it was very healing for all of us. I know it was healing for me. In fact, I think it was more healing to write that book than all my years of therapy, which yeah. my ther years of therapy were wonderful and healing and crucial to my yeah. eventual success, you know, but, but this was a very, a very healing experience to process some of those memories and think about things that are hard to think about and that you don't necessarily want to remember. And doing it in a way where you are hopeful that it will help somebody else's life be better makes it so that it's easier to kind of revisit and go through. Yeah. And the reason that we ended up calling it the pathways home, plural, was because as we were writing it, Larissa said, you know, I always thought it would just be all about you. I never realized how much my life would be in this book as well. Yeah. yeah. And you can really it was her journey as well. Yeah. Yes. And that was really important too, because her life was not without hardships or trials either, you know? And so we thought that was really important to show that because sometimes I think people have the erroneous belief that if they make all the right choices and do all the right things, then their life will be without trial. And that's just as dangerous as being a drug addict, really, right. because your expectation for a life is beyond what the capacity actually is for your life to be. And so I think that was that was just a crucial element to the, the book to be able to illustrate the way that lives go because but, of the yeah. Right. And I mean, really, that how you respond to the trials that you have, right? Because we all have trials, but how are we responding to it? Are we responding to it in a faith-based way? Or are we responding to it in a reckless addiction, drug behavior way? You know, because we're all... Exactly. So I think that's a really interesting way of looking at the book. And oh, I am so glad that you came on with me today. It's been so fun for me to just talk with you again. It's been too long. We need to catch up more often. I just love this. No, I love hearing your voice. And I'm really just honored to be on here. So thank oh, you for having me. I just, you just kept coming to my mind. And that's kind of how I'm rolling with the podcast. I am just trying to listen to that little spirit. Tell me who needs to be on. And you are supposed to be one of these front runners to get this thing going. I appreciate you being on here so much because I feel like you have so much that you have overcome and it is truly a miracle the things that you've been through and that you are such a well-adjusted person now and that you are so full of faith after being in literal hell for so many years. It really just gives everybody hope for the ones that they love that they don't think could ever come back. So Anyway, thank you so much. Well, thank you for all of those kind words. And yeah, it's, I mean, that is what the book is about, that there's no such thing as hopelessness. There's that quote in there by Todd Callister where he says, Christ did not just descend to your condition, he descended below it, that you could all return, that everyone can return. And so I think it's really important to never give up. You just never know what, how God is working in people's lives and what he is capable of doing because miracles are not dead. Love it so much. 
Thank you so much for spending time with us today. If you love this podcast, I hope that you'll head over to your favorite podcast app and give us a subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And we love so much your rating and reviews, if you don't mind leaving us one of those. It helps our podcast to grow and makes us easier to find on other podcast apps. And for sure, go out and purchase Linnea's book, The Pathways Home. It's on Amazon and there will be a link to it in our show notes. Have a great day.